I think there's something special about choosing a field that you're interested in at a young age and and pursuing that with your heart and going through the internal struggle and the external struggle to figure out exactly where your place is when it comes to a certain industry or passion. My guest here is no exception when it comes to this philosophy. Today, on A Word Before We Leave, we have Ishan Parikh. Ishan Parikh is an old high school friend of mine. We had both made movies together in high school, two feature-length ones that some might say aren't necessarily spectacular in any sense, but we made them. It was it was a place to start. So this is going to be a little reminiscent for me, and uh, just to warn you as the listener, the audio recorded is on two different locations because Ishan's currently in Georgia, I'm currently in Lincoln, and so we had to record through Zoom. I also had Ishan give me his audio from his phone, and he recorded on his end. So without a further ado, this is A Word Before We Leave. Welcome to A Word Before We Leave. I'm Brett Gaffney. On today's episode, I'm here with Ishan Parikh. Ishan is from Overland Park, Kansas, graduated from KU in 2020, majoring in film and media studies, and is currently finishing his graduate degree at Savannah College of Art and Design. Ishan is also releasing a new short film titled Sydney, starring South Dakota native Mia Hilt. Ishan's plans for the future is to travel the world, discover new places, and to be a working filmmaker. Ishan, welcome to the episode, and thanks for joining us. To start us off, I think we're going to jump right into Word of the Day. Uh, the basic premise for word of the day, uh, I'm going to give you the word and the definition, and all we have to do is to make our own sentence with the word so that we can find ways to implement this into our daily lives for not just us, but also the listener. So today's word of the day is brought to you by dictionary.com, not sponsored. And the word is circumabulate. And the definition circumabulate. is- Yeah, circumabulate. So That is a unique word I've it, never heard ever. It's a big one. Um, the definition is, it's a verb. It's to walk or go about or around, especially ceremoniously. The origin of circumabulate, to walk around, is a compound of two Latin origin stems, circum, around, and ambule, to walk. As we learned from the recent word of the days, circadian and the circumstellar, circumstellar comes from the Latin circus, circle, which is the source of English terms such as circa, circular, and circumference. The stem ambule comes from the Latin ambulare, which is to walk, which gives rise to English amble, ambulance, and funambulist, or a tightrope walker. Do you want me to spell it, or you think you can think of a sentence with circumambulate? Is it C-R, no, C-I-R-C-U-M? A-B-U-L-A-T-E. Did, Very I, did close. I get that right? You were, you were close. You're off by one letter. It's a C-I-R-C-U-M-A-M-B-U-L-A-T-E. Sir, okay, circumambulate. Ambulate, yeah. Um, and the provided example sentence from dictionary.com, not sponsored, is, I'm proud to say I did circumambulate the gigantic three-century-old Zamana tree with branches that span the equivalent of a city block. It's a tropical tree of life. What a what a creative way to start off the show, Brett. That's um, a sentence with circumambulate. So you said the the the, the basic um, definition is to walk around, correct? Pretty much, yeah. Especially ceremoniously, they put emphasis on that. Ceremoniously, so like that's a routine kind of system. Um, I mean, I guess they say you know. Walking in general is good. People always want to get their steps in. So I guess get up in the morning and circumambulate, folks. <laughs> and my sentence will be after the victory of defeating 
all the tr- Trojan warriors during the Trojan War. Wait, no, that I'm changing my sentence immediately because I don't want to say something incorrect. That just sounds like something you would write in like um, social studies class in like, in it like does. middle school. Like when they when they ask for complete sentences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to circumambulate after our victory winning the recent soccer game. But then I realized that we lost by one point. That's my sentence. I guess I could work it into Harry Potter some way. Like after the Wizarding War ended, like after the Battle of Hogwarts ended, Harry and his friends circumambulated around the castle grounds. If that's that's a lot. That's, be- that's a lot better than what I I said. So, <laughs> Ishan, you get bonus points for for doing two sentences. With it, it takes you right back into school when they ask for like you know feels like it, it would be on one of those fill in the blanks um, in like you know English whenever you're doing the grammar part or vocab. Yeah, yeah it'd be a vocab word. There you go. Yeah, it'd definitely be a vocab word. We have to like kind of plan out what words are not similar enough to the sentence that's already provided. You have to fill in the blank. Yeah, or it's like I you'd it'd be on a test. You know, like the amount of vocab yeah. tests we took in school, uh, and I say that because Brett and I went to you know high school together, so he knows he gets the you know gets the jig. So now that we've done the word of the day, I think it's perfect time now that you're all warmed up um, to start going into the questions. So if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready, man. All right, so Ishan, what is one thing that you would claim to be your passion? And I think I know the answer to this, but I'd like for you to tell the listener. Uh, do you want to do you want to take a, a a a shot at the board if you want to if you want to tell the folks? My guess is Ishan's answer is that he uh, is he's passionate about movies, making movies specifically. Bingo! Well, he got it. Yeah, I'm. Um, I guess if you were to boil down like to the the, the one thing that um, has kind of kept me going uh, throughout the latter the latter half of my teens and and just kind of you know getting into my my early twenties now it's it's been movies yeah um, I'm a cinephile I am constantly uh, I make movies I watch movies so it's 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 kind of I'm I'm very well well dove in into that. Um, the, the just kind of the world of cinema at this point so if you were to maybe describe when you were a kid when what at what age did you know that movies were something that caught your attention something that you might possibly want to do there was no like one aha moment it was just kind of you know i was very interested in in just storytelling in general. I mean, obviously, like, you know, the the one that you point to immediately is like, you know, growing up or when you're younger, you know, Star Wars being like a really big touchstone, Harry Potter being a really big touchstone. And so just kind of became becoming really quickly obsessed with these stories that 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 go beyond, you know, what we know and can kind of take you into uh worlds that, you know, we can only imagine of. And so, you know, as a kid, I was, you know, um, just completely taken by all those things, you know, set creativity. And so, you know, movies were, I mean, I loved going to watch movies um, always. And I think at a certain point, probably around like age seven, eight, nine, you know, like around that time, it, it occurred to me like, okay, well, there's, there's people that clearly, you know, do a lot of work to make this happen, you know, and, and there's clearly somebody, you know, pulling together the entire process to, to, you know, and then, and then I, I, I found out like what, what a, a movie director is, 
Um, and you know, you hear about like, you know, Steven Spielberg. I think I did like a book report on him when I was like, or, or like a, um, a biography project, you know, where you had to pick somebody. So I did Steven Spielberg. And so I think that was probably like the germ of it. And then I remember when I was 10 years old, I went to see Inception on opening day, um, like a 11 AM IMAX show. And I just remember walking out of that movie going like, I have no idea what I just saw, but it was cool, you know? And obviously at 10 years old, you're not going to understand Inception. It's, it, it, it's taken me many years and watching that film. It's my favorite movie of, of all time uh, to this day. And so it, that's kind of when it dawned on me that, you know, this would be a really cool job. Um, and I never really took it seriously. You know, I think I, at some point I wanted to be like an author, you know, I tried writing like books and stuff like that when I was probably like 11 or 12 and that didn't work out. Um, and, and then I became very interested in like television and writing television uh, watching shows like Lost and and Breaking Bad. I probably watched Breaking Bad when I was like probably a little too young for it. But I think it was a lot of, it was a mixture of a lot of those um, stories that really spoke to me and kind of obviously film became the, the, the most prevalent one just because it was the one, I mean, now getting older, I have a better understanding of why it is the way it is. But, um, you know, movies are the one, nexus i would say where it all like intersects you know you have writing uh music uh acting and all these like dance and all these like different forms of art can really come together um through the screen so so how would you compare filmmaking to other forms of art you you touched on how it, it seems like it's a bit more of a collaboration right me being an actor and a podcaster i i, I understand that there's there's a lot of different facets that go into filmmaking. Um, so how would you describe that to someone that may have never made a movie or been on set or doesn't have much of a clue on like what goes behind the scenes in writing, planning, making the movie, shooting, editing, so on? I mean, from like from a from a director's standpoint, it's the weirdest job um, throughout the whole process, because a lot of times, like, you're not doing anything except telling people what to do. And that's all it is, is it's just decision making. But like, I would say if, if for somebody who's never, ever, ever made a movie before, you know, the most important thing that you have to figure out is what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? In what world does it take place? And what, you know, keyword genre is, is has become really important to me over the years. Um, because there's so many different kinds and the process by which you make a movie is, is you just said it is that you're collaborating with different people to make it come to life, you know, because what you really, the funny part about filmmaking is it's make-believe, you know, you are essentially playing with action figures, but those action figures are real life people. Um, and it's telling a story on screen that enlights excites and entertains people. Those are kind of the three key words that I have always kind of um, looked to when, when, whenever you're trying to come up with that story, you know? And so that process is, it's, it's in three different portions, you know, the, the writing or the, the pre-production, production, post-production, and each time you're making the movie over and over and over again. And as a director, you have the unique, I would say blessing and curse of growing with that story over the three different phases. And so I feel like that's kind of the, in a nutshell, like that's what filmmaking is, is that you're pulling together different 
ways of, of um, creating, whether it's through color, whether it's through performance, whether it's through, you know, words and all of that. And you're, you're, you're kind of like it, putting it into a melting pot. And then what's on the screen is, is that alchemy that happens. What would you say is the hardest part about making a movie? I mean, it's all hard, really. I, I feel like, I mean, the, the hardest part I feel like is, um, I mean, I've personally, I've always found shooting stressful. I've always found it the hardest part. I've come to like it a little bit more over the years, but I've always dreaded like going, cause like, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to adapt to the vision as it's happening in front of you. You know, you've got to very early on separate yourself, especially if somebody like, you know, like I write all my own stuff. I direct all my own stuff. So it's like that thing of you have what's in your head, but then what's nine times out of 10, unless you're just like a genius, which I have not met one, you know, it's, you're, it, it's never going to come out the way you think it's going to, or the way you have always imagined it. So at the end you get something it's, it's again, it's that al- alchemy that happens. Um, and I feel like it's, it's cool to experience, but it's also hard because, you know, as a director, you have to like, you have to gauge that vision as it's, as it's, you know, progressing. And I, I, I find that, you know, a lot of times it's a lot of trial and error. Um, It's a lot of planning. Uh, It's a lot of improv and you have to mix all those things together. And, you know, the scariest part, the hardest part is not knowing what's going to come out at the other end. Um, So I feel like that is, probably what i found is like the hardest i know what you what you think is the hardest oh oh i personally i find the hardest part about making movies is trying to understand what the director wants in the scene that we're recording because i'm on the other side right like you're behind the camera i'm in front of the camera and let's say director x makes actor y want to do said thing in his head but then it doesn't go to go as planned I think the hard part is the actor is is making the director happy in a sense, like keeping the director, maybe not happy, but like satisfied with the work that they're presenting. Because at the end of the day, like when you're on set, sure, you can think about character motivation and objective. And, and I can go into hours upon hours about like what it takes to like build a human being out of a script. But when you're there on set, a lot of it is like, sometimes you have to throw some of that out of the door and you just have to work with what with what the director is giving you because you might plan for this scene to go one way. And then all of a sudden the director says one sentence that changes your mind as, as an actor. And you're like, Oh, well, all that prep work was nice, but I've had had like numerous, um, like a lot of my colleagues would probably just like want to throw things at me when I say this, but I think really like film acting is it's harder than theater. I feel like, because I think, you as an artist, as an actor, you know, as an artist, when you're going to make a movie, I feel like you're, you're selling yourself over to a process that is not completely yours. You know, like what you just said, you might have all this prep that you've done. And I, and I know people say, prepare, prepare, prepare. And then you get on the day of, and then you just throw it all out the door that happens in stage two, but you've got this person who, you know, in the back of your mind is, is going to go to the next stage of the process and manipulate everything that you've done on the day of. And I feel like that as an actor or as just a performer can really, um, I I don't know what the right word to say here, but is it can really temper with, with your process as bringing that character, building it from, from the page 
and what you feel it should be. But then you get, you know, notes on the day of and you have to adjust. And then all of a sudden in the mind, you're going like, you know, I don't know if this is what I wanted, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Or you do something that you feel really good about, but then like the director goes to the editing room, the actor doesn't, and they can really choose, pick and choose from different takes and whatnot and really build something um, that, that that's that's my favorite part. Sorry to interrupt, but that's one of my favorite parts about like seeing the final product is like seeing what takes they chose. I think the best part about film acting as an actor is is the freedom to do something different every time. Mm. You know, like like you you hear stories about John Travolta delivering a line differently um, every single take for Pulp Fiction, and then they just take like certain cuts of him based on different shots, different scenes that they've done. And then they'll just splice it in. So like you do the diner scene maybe five to six times and they take a sentence that John Travolta says from each different take, you know, I, have you heard about the thing that Fincher does? He will literally mix different take, like in within the same frame, he will, I guess there's some technology now that allows you to blend different takes together. And it's, what you're seeing is one frame, but three different takes kind of could have gone on again. That's because he does so much takes so many takes is that it allows you to do um, essentially a lot of different things within the same frame. So I've always found it really interesting how, you know, that process of manipulation happens. Obviously I feel like on stage, you know, the actor is more in control, you know, you don't like, I could be wrong. I've never done stage. I I mean, I think film acting is it's, it's just as truthful. It's, it can be very raw, you know? Um, I just think it's, it must feel a little insecure as, as an actor, you know, to know that the process is not completely yours. But then again, when you're making a movie, you know, you are, everybody at the end of the day is selling themselves to, they're selling themselves over to a larger vision at hand. That's, that's, you know, controlling them. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm, I was wondering, Ishan, what is your favorite memory on set? You've worked on a lot of short films in the past. You've worked on a few feature-length films through your undergrad and through high school. I was a part of two of them in high school. So my guess is you have a lot of good memories on set. I'm guessing you also have a lot of bad memories. I'll give you the option. You can choose a good memory or a bad memory, but only one. I mean, it's there have been so many. I feel like um, with, I think one of the, the ones, the, the one probably um, I'll always cherish the most is um, probably is we were um, shooting a scene from Rainbow Boulevard. Um, and I think it was the it was the very last scene. And I had written that scene a year before. And it was I think what just brought me so much joy is that it turned out exactly that I wanted to. And again, it goes to the thing of like, you have to grow with the vision. And, you know, one year later, me probably didn't read that scene the same way, but it was so satisfying to, to get to that, like to be on that day. Um, and it, it was, it was just overall really satisfying. I remember everything clicked. Like you have those moments where you, you know, like the acting, the camera work, the lighting, the location, everything just clicks, everything just comes together. And so I, I mean, I've always, I've always cherished that day the most. And obviously when we were doing, um, I think it was, we were doing Deranged, which was our first movie that we did, um, that Brett and I made in our sophomore year of, of high school. And I remember on the day of, we were, 
it might have been it was a night we went to like prairie fire and this was probably like in the fourth or fifth day of shooting and up until here like we had no idea what the hell we were doing god only knew if any of this was ever really gonna like actually work for all we knew like we were gonna do this for like maybe two weeks and then like we were gonna be like okay yeah this is like this was fun and all but uh and i remember we did a shot where we went with the phone, I, I, I th- yeah, I was, I, I, I was the one who, who took that shot. We went around your shoulder and onto your face as you were walking. And I remember going home and watching that and just going like, oh my God, like we're making a movie. And I know it was, a, it was a very like, you know, less mature version of us um, when we were first kind of starting out making movies and stuff like that. And it, it was just, it was just fun. And, and, and I, I cherish that because it, it for some reason, like I walked away from that night going like I believe in myself and not like you have the conviction. You know, I feel like a lot of the 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 key thing to have as as a filmmaker as as a creative is that you have to have conviction. Like if you're convinced yourself that you can do this, then you can do it. And if you don't have it, then chances are you know you're just going to look negatively at at whatever you're doing. And it's you know it's it's the thing is like you have to believe, and so. I would say like those are probably like the two days that I mean, but like there's there's been so many, I feel like, over all the films, especially after they've as they've gotten bigger and bigger and, and as you know, more I I'm I'm working with more and more people on them and stuff like that. So Yeah. Yeah. Look, I forgot about that day at Prairie Fire. That was a good day. I remember working on on Deranged and a lot of it was like, okay, so Ishan and I wrote this ninety page, a hundred page movie. And we're going to film it on our iPhones and we're going to see what as happens. one does. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's old. all, I mean, that's all you got when you're 15 is you have a phone. And I remember that year for Christmas, I asked for like microphones that are compatible with the iPhone. I was asking for like different like lenses you could put over the like stock camera lens that came with the iPhone. And I get like a fisheye lens or like a micro lens or a macro lens. And I'd be like, Oh, these are trash. I'm not, I don't want to use these at all. And we just, we just made the most out of what we had. And I think like, starting if you want to do something you got to start right then and there and that was kind of like what i told you in class when you were like oh yeah i want to i want to make a movie and so i was like well well then do it like what's stopping you and that's the thing is like you you know people ask you know how do you how like how do you make a movie how do you get started and the truth is like there's no there's no right or wrong way to do it. i mean the only wrong way to do it is to not do it at all and i feel like if you're out there doing it and and you keep doing it, you, you know, like, like we did, you know, and then the next year we made another movie, which was longer, more ambitious, but we took what we learned from the first one and essentially applied it to, you know, the second go around and, and we got better. And, and ever since then, you know, I've, I feel like every film teaches me something new. Every film is, it's, it's important to me that they're different experiences, each one, and to, to have that variety. And I feel like you're able to acquire your skills through that. And, um, I think, you know, at a young age, like if you're able to just jump off the deep end like that or just throw yourself off, you know, it's it's the thing about, you know, when you learn to you either sink or swim and and if everybody wants to learn to swim, they can swim and they'll float. And I feel like that's the same thing with, with filmmaking is that, you know, the more you do it. Um, and that's the thing about is that nobody's going to be there to tell you no. Um, you just have to keep finding your collaborators, finding that like family of yours and 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 keep doing it you said best day i remember i actually came one of the coolest was like it was the very last day we were doing deranged i remember 
And right as we finished that big storm, and it's in the movie, actually, it's where the clouds came together. And I got, I just remember like, wow, like here's, here's the magic of it. And, and we were like, go, 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 go. And we were, um, I think that was the one where she like walks away at the end. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So now I'm going to transition into a segment. This is a new segment to a word before we leave. So as a listener, thanks for listening to episode three. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, this new segment is called, um, what did I call it? Oh, this new segment is called, what's the word? I'm going to give Ishan a news article unrelated to the podcast to kind of throw him on his toes. And Ishan is going to simply provide commentary after I read the news article to him, see what his thoughts are. Ishan, you think you can do that? Okay, yeah, so I've this is opinion, right. I've got opinions. This is from AP News. This was posted yesterday. A blind older dog found in Alaska three weeks after wandering off. Sitka, Alaska, AP. An Alaska family had given up hope of finding their blind, elderly golden retriever who wandered away from home three weeks ago, but a construction crew found Lulu in salmonberry bushes after initially confusing her for a bear. Lulu was barely alive after being found Tuesday, but she's being nursed back to health and is back home with her family. The Daily Sitka Sentinel, the Daily Sitka Sentinel, Sentinel, ah, the Daily Sitka Sentinel, I can't even say that word, the Daily Sitka Sentinel reported. She means everything, owner Ted Kabaki said. I have five daughters, and they're four to 13 years old, so they spent every day of their life with that dog. The Kabaki family searched for weeks after Lulu wandered off on June 18th. She's just so helpless, and you kind of imagine that she can't really get far because she can't see, he said. It didn't help when the family was subject to a terrible joke when someone claimed that when they found Lulu a few days into the search, we put the kids to bed to, and got a text saying, we found your dog, or I have found your dog. And we're like, oh, my God, this is incredible, he said. Then the person texts me saying, just kidding, this happened. Yeah, that was all just part of this terrible story. After searching for weeks, the family had given up hope. But then a construction crew this week spotted Lulu lying in the brush alongside the Kabaki's home in a bush. They got the dog back. And that, that's the end of the article. Quick one. What's your thoughts on this blind dog wandering away in Alaska? I mean, I've never been to Alaska, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that they found the, the, the dog and, you know, it came back to the family. I'm curious how you let a blind dog wander off, but also, you know, I'm guessing they just let it out to potty and it walked away being a blind golden retriever and just couldn't find its way back. I feel like there's a lack of responsibility there, you know, letting a blind dog out, but I feel like it, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, how could this happen? But when it happens, you just have to put that aside and and focus on, you know, getting the, getting the dog back. I wonder, so my guess is that this dog was probably living off of like berries and stuff and like maybe a small animal here and there, whatever it could catch, but it's probably just eating whatever it could. It was gone for three weeks. You don't think they have poisonous berries in Alaska, do you? Well, I mean, the dog's alive. They probably do. I mean, if there's poisonous berries in Kansas and Nebraska, there's poisonous berries in Alaska. There's poisonous berries everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's great that they found them. Yeah. Okay, now that the segment is over, we're going to transition into some of the more personal questions. It, it's going to, let's just say I've, I've buttered you up for these questions based on talking to you okay. for the past like 30 minutes or so. That was only the beginning. Yeah, now comes the big stuff. What is something you wish somebody told you when you were younger that you know now? Slow down, be patient. Uh, you're only like... 
you're young. <laughs> I spent a lot of like when I was younger, like I, I mean, you know this, I always like, I, it's that one, it's that weird thing where it's like when you're younger, you always want to be older. And then when you do get older, you're like, man, I just wish I was like 13, 14 again, you know, where you had nothing to worry about. Cause time, obviously like time goes by slower when we're younger. It's only like when we get older, I feel like that, you know, cause you have more things to worry about. You have more stress on you and stuff like that. And you just need to like get by life. It time speeds up. So I feel like if there's a lot of some, I feel like I could go back. I wish I could go back and tell my younger self to be patient and to hang in there. Who is somebody that you admire or look up to and why? Easy answer is my grandfather. Um, just cause he's, I feel like the most like coolest Zen wise and like hardworking person there is. He's like almost in his eighties now and he's still a working doctor or, uh, working oncologist. He's not practicing, but he works at a VA hospital. And so just like to be at, at an age like that and still operate, I feel like is, is admirable. I mean, my hero in film is, is Christopher Nolan. Um, just to, you know, you look at that career and you go like, you know, wow, somebody who stuck to his guns didn't compromise. Um, and he's, you know, you're in that position where you get to entertain audiences on your own terms. And so that's a hard question. I feel like it just changes every few years. Like, who do you admire? Who do you look up to? Is there anybody that you constantly go back to? Maybe you're looking at their work or you're looking at their mentality of life or the way they approach just the day to day, maybe in your daily life that you're just like, wow, like this is somebody that is, is, is admirable. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked at the boys and girls club for two years in my, um, first two years of college, almost three. Yeah. Um, and my manager there, my boss there was pretty inspirational. I feel like he had this mentality of, you know, of being yourself, being confident, being comfortable with yourself. Cause spoiler alert, you know, in my late teens, I wasn't very, like I was probably the most insecure I've ever been. And, you know, to be in a job where you're working with kids who obviously they bring out a different side in you, whether you like it or not being around kids and to have, somebody like, like Anthony that I could, you know, just observe in their, in daily life and somebody who's made mistakes in his life is very aware of it, you know, and now has dedicated his life to education. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't plan on working in education, but I feel like there's something admirable about, admirable about having that kind of, of mentality. And, and he was always just full of positivity. He had this saying called PVO positive vibes only. He'd always type that into our work chat and so that always brought a smile to my face. But like, yeah, you always look for those people in life that you like, that make you want to show up to work or like, you know, that you see like on the, on the daily pretty much. And so yeah, I probably like, as far as like my daily life went, that was probably somebody I looked up to. Do you have like, I, or does it change for you or do you have like that one set person? Uh, ooh. See, normally I don't get asked questions by my guests. So this is like throwing me for a loop right now, but I am more than welcome to answer them. Um, You're in the hot seat now, Brad. Brad. Yeah, I do. I. It is a hard question. Um, 
I've always, I've always looked up to my dad. He, he fought for our family. You know, he was the kind of like, I, my parents got divorced when I was at a young age around eight, but I never saw him give up on himself or on my siblings or I, and, and he constantly, and my mom too. I mean, they both have fought their own battles and I love them and respect them for who they are. And I, I feel like I took their, their affection and their hard work um, as, as a form of, I felt like I was ignored as a kid because of that. But I, looking back, I realized now, like the older you got, you know, like I was like, I didn't care back then. And now I look back, I'm like, okay, I did care. I just pretended that I didn't care. And now it's like, I understand why they were absent at times. It's because they were trying to keep two roofs over me and my siblings heads. And as a kid, you don't think about that. You think about, oh, who am I going to play with today? What does school look like tomorrow? You're, you're not thinking about the grand scheme of like, all right, my parents have a 401k. They're both trying to save for, they're both living and providing for a whole family, not just themselves. And now you get to the point where you're, you're about 20. And now I am providing for just myself. And it's, you know, it's like, I could, I could not raise a kid right now, but I want to get to that point where I could work hard enough and, and provide for other people. And I think that's just like, the hard work that I learned from my parents is something that stuck with me, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think hard work is something when you're younger, you don't acknowledge because you're not that person doing it. I mean, now you and I are in our twenties and we're going into an industry where you have to work your butt off. Otherwise you will not survive. And so that's, I mean, seeing like my grandfather, he came from a, you know, small village in India all the way to New York City to to um, become a working uh, oncologist. And he had five kids, my mom being the, the oldest of them. And, you know, bringing over at a, and he was in, a, he was in his 20s when that happened, 20s, early 30s, probably bringing a whole family over, migrating them, getting them taken care of. And through the years, he remained working. Um, he experienced the loss of his two children, uh, or two of two out of the five of his children. And, and then you just like that kind of loss is unfathomable to somebody like me who was younger. But now like the older I get, the more you acknowledge going like, my God, how do and he also like fought lymphoma during all of that as well. And, and throughout all of it, he maintained such a strength. Um, and he, he maintained, um, a sensibility of, of, and, and, and a mantra sort of that, you know, we must go forward in life you know, no matter the circumstances, no matter the losses, no matter how much life brings you down to your knees, you know, you rise back up, um, and, and, and keep going along. So, uh, it's, it's funny how age time and everything, you know, evolves us and certain things we don't understand at one point in our life, we do just with, with time and with experience. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ishan, are you ready for the final question? It is just one word. <laughs> Now I ask everybody this. Um, this is this is the premise of the podcast, as the listener knows. Would you care to share a word before we leave? You can say a sentence. You can say a paragraph. You can direct this towards the audience. You can direct this towards yourself, a future version of yourself. Really, mm. it's it's open ended for a reason. I'm gonna go for a cheesy one. What or I'm I'm gonna steal a line from from this movie. Said never sell yourself short. Um, which is, is, it's kind of the backbone of, of, of the movie. And it's something that somebody once told me about two or three years ago. And I, 
have somewhat for the most part abided by that. It, I don't know if it was a piece of advice. It was more just like, you know, somebody texting me something really nice, really kind and saying, never sell yourself short. So it's probably what I would, I would leave your listeners with. Well, everybody, you heard it here first. Ishan Parikh, don't sell yourself short. Well, Ishan, I want to thank you today for joining us. I'm going to say a quick special thanks to the listener, to Matthew Gaffney, Ashley Gaffney, Rick Alloway, Kelly Bowling, uh, Parker Ryle, Ishan Parikh, Morgan McCoy, and to anyone else out there that is listening to a word before we leave. Maybe you too could write a story of your own today and possibly make it into a movie if you're feeling adventurous because you know we only have so much time so you might as well act now because if it's what you want to do then go ahead and do it yep own your story this has been brett gaffney and ishan parikh and this has been a word before we leave thanks for listening thanks brett of course how do i how do i end the, the recording on the on the button I feel like it's just going to record until you end. The Can meeting. I just hit stop recording? So um, there's a thing that I do for my outro for all the podcasts. And that's like, we got to get up and leave and then close, close the door. Cause the door closing is like the end of the podcast. Does that make sense? But I'm mm-hmm. going to like slowly fade out our talking right now. So it's good. So I can't go to my door cause I soundproofed it. So I need you to get up and like close the door. You want me to do it with me?